Good morning, Woodland Hills. So good to see you all this morning. I'm Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here. Um, before we get into this series that we're going to be doing, I want to give a little announcement. I, I, I uh, talk, this is directed mainly to the pod parishioners, but uh, Woodland Hills is invited to listen on this too. Um, I talk a lot about this rising revolution all over the globe. People are getting this vision of a Jesus-looking God raising up a Jesus-looking kingdom uh, to change the world in a Jesus kind of way. And um, it, it's, it's awesome. I have the privilege of, of interacting with a lot of folks that are out there, and it's just exciting. Last three days spent with uh, a couple of folks from Fresno, California. Um, they are uh, in the seminary there in Fresno. They have a Mennonite seminary. And uh, this, they have put together and I've worked with them some on this, uh, put together a uh, program, a master's program designed just for the people of this rising revolution. Uh, it's um, it was one of the greatest needs. We get to ask this all the time. People, they get this, and they want to join. They want to be part of what's going on here. They want to turn their houses into house churches and just get involved, but they don't have any training for it. And so this is an online program. It's an accredited master's program that's just designed for the folks who are catching this vision. Uh, I am going to be teaching part of this. Uh, Bruxy Cavi is part, uh, teaching part of it. Brian Zane and some others are part of this. And so if, you, if that is you, if you want to get some online training, there's four residencies that you have in, in, the, in the process of this three-year program, fully accredited. But if that's you, uh, can you put up the address up, up there? Yeah, there you go. Check that out. Get more information that way. And uh, better hurry, though, because I hear that it's filling up very, very quickly. But yeah, we've been going through this for a while. All right. We are in this series, Love, Walk, Do. Is that what it's called, Love, Walk, Do? The last time I got it all mixed up. Love, do, walk. Do love to walk. I love to walk. I love, I love to walk to you. I don't know. Whatever it's titled, it's based on Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. Let's read it. He has shown you, O mortal. Remember that you're mortal. What is good? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The folks prior to the time of Micah, they thought that God was really delighting in animal sacrifices. That sweet-smelling aroma. You have that phrase 13 times in the Old Testament. Sweet-smelling aroma. Like, God really is in that smell. Mmm, I do love that burning lamb. Well, uh, what, what Mike, what's being revealed now, because the people are at the spot where they can receive this, is that really God says, I, I've never gotten into those animal sacrifices. Um, what I've always wanted, and, and this is it, it's just for our people to, to, to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. And so we're going to spend three weeks looking at each one of those three things there. Uh, for various reasons, we're starting with uh, the love mercy call. And we'll end with the do justice call. Love mercy. What is it to love mercy? You have mercy on someone when you pardon them, when the, you, you don't give them what they deserve. So to love mercy is to love it when people don't get what they deserve. Uh, justice is about collecting a debt. You owe a debt to me because you wronged me or a debt to society because you wronged society. But to love mercy is to not love that. It's to love it when people don't pay their debt. In fact, to love mercy is to hate debt collecting. Think about it. Now, I don't think that we can ever be a people who love mercy and hate debt collecting uh, unless we realize, become really fully aware that we ourselves stand before God only by his mercy. And this is going to be the major thrust of my message. Can't be mer to really delight in, seeing, in giving mercy to others and in seeing mercy extended to others, 
and to see people transformed by that mercy, to really delight in that, well, the degree to which we can do that will be the degree to which we are aware that we ourselves stand only by the mercy of God. I, I want to share with you this experience. Some, some of you know, I think probably a lot of you know, that I have, uh, Shelly and I have a, a son, uh, Nathan. He's 30 years old, and he has autism, high-functioning autism, and some other challenges as well. And he's, he's just wired in such a way that he is very aware of kind of what normal is, and he longs for it. But because of his disability, he's rarely able to get it. And so he lives much of his life with the life he wants just outside of his grasp. And uh, it pains him. It, 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 he struggles with depression because of that. Um, and two years ago, he was really going through a tough bout in the winter. He just was very depressed. And Shelly and I decided he needed some positive thing, something to look forward to, something to pick him up. And he's always wanted to go to Las Vegas. And so we decided that I would take him on a three-day midweek trip down to Las Vegas. Just decided, to, let's, let's go do it. He just needed a boost there. Uh, and he had a great time. Um, I did not. In fact, I was absolutely miserable the whole time I'm down there. For one thing, you know, I knew they called it Sin City, but I had no idea. Uh, it was, it was, I mean, on, on, on the corner of every street, they have these guys handing out photos of almost completely nude girls with, with a number on that you can call if you want to have sex. And, and then the, the ground is littered with all these cards, these photo, photos. She's just st stepping on them. Because people look at it, and well, that's interesting, and they throw it. And so it was, just, it was surrealistic. And it, 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 it grieved me. It, it made me feel kind of nauseous. The whole time I was down there, I was, had this sick feeling in my soul. Because it, it was like these girls were like pieces of meat. You just go to a restaurant and order them and chew them up and spit them out. And it was just so cheap. Everything seemed so cheap. Life seemed so cheap. Uh, it felt like, like everything's tinsy or, or paper thin. It just, it was, it, it gave me a nauseous feeling. Um, then on top of that, I, I, I don't know what it was down there, but I had these allergies that was just terrible. My eyes were puffy and itchy, and my nose was running the whole time I'm down there, and that's making me miserable. Then on top of that, I already had been going through a kind of a patch where my back was acting out. Well, you get down there, and, and the beds are just way too soft. I need like a hot, rock hard bed. Uh, otherwise, it jacks my back up. So Shelly and I got one of these, uh, what do they call, where we, we can adjust how hard it is. I'm at 100, and she's at 20. You know, that's just, so if I go too much on her side, I roll down a valley, you know, so end up on top of her. But uh, in these hotel beds, it's just way too soft, and I try to sleep on the ground, and, and that didn't work. But every day I'm down there, my back gets worse and worse and worse. By the end of this thing, the third day, I couldn't put my own socks on. I was like, ugh. Plus, Nathan, he, of course, this is the highlight of his life, so he wants to see everything and do everything, so we got to walk everywhere. And, and I, oh, I, I was just in pain. Allergies, pain, grieving. And then, to make it worse, I think this was the worst part of it, is I could not sleep for my life. I mean, I, I, I just couldn't sleep. Um, first night, I maybe got two hours. The second night, one. Third night, not even that. And so we're walking everywhere with a painful back and allergies, and I'm, I'm getting exhausted. I, I was getting miserable. But I really, I so know, I, I knew that Nathan needed a positive, so I slap on a happy face and try to soldier through it. I know, what a dad. I don't know. <laughs> so we, he, he had a great time until the last night that we were there. We went, went to see this. We'd always go to a show, a matinee show, and then we'd go to an evening show, and uh, this, this one show, the last day we were there, it was, I think, called Jabberwocky 
or something like that, Jabberwocky. And it was a dance routine. It was really fantastic. I mean, it's like, whoa, mind-blowing. So that was really good. It was all positive. I think we're going to end on a strong note. But as we're walking home, Nathan all of a sudden notices all the couples around us. And see, one of the primary sources of pain in his life is that he's never been able to have a girlfriend, never, you know, never, he doesn't think he's ever going to get married, ever going to have sex. And so, so this really is a lot of pain for him. And he starts noticing this, and he starts wanting this, and that sends him into a spiral downward. And so we get to the hotel room and spend about an hour just talking about this. And I'm trying to put the best possible spin on it, but my heart's breaking for this kid. So we fall asleep, I think, sometime around 1 o'clock in the morning. And then, then one of the most unusual, bizarre, powerful experiences I've ever had in my life happened. I woke up about 40, 45 minutes later. But it felt like something woke me up. And... As soon as I woke up, I was aware that there was, the atmosphere of the room was different and was strange. Um, I laid in my bed for a few moments, kind of puzzled by what this was, and felt uh, actually ominous, almost threatening, but not demonic. It was just a threatening thing. And then, before I knew it, I rolled out of my bed and laid prostrate on the ground. And I didn't I didn't decide to do that. I didn't like think about doing that. I just did it. It was like an instinctive thing. It was like uh, shivering when you're cold. You don't have to think about it. You just instinctively do it. Well, in the light of this presence in this room, I just got low. I got on the ground prostrate. And I was aware that I am in this room surrounded by, enveloped by, and it felt almost threatened by the undiluted presence of God the holiness of God. And the experience was, I think, something like what Isaiah had. He, he, he recounts this experience in Isaiah chapter 6. Here's what he says. Okay, put up Isaiah chapter 6. I don't have my notes up here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they were flying. And they were calling to one another and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the sound of their voices, at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the, the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I'm in the presence, for whatever reason, I'm in the presence of this undiluted holiness. And, and what, it, what it felt like, and words escape me when I come to describing this, but it was like, in the light of that undiluted, pure holiness, I, it, it highlighted my unholiness. And I felt like Isaiah, I, I didn't see the Lord lifted up or seraphim or anything like that, but I just, as I'm laying prostrate on the ground, I'm, I become acutely aware of like every vile part of me, everything in me that is in contradiction to this holiness. I become aware of every vile, every broken thing in me, every disgusting thing in me, perverted thing in me, rebellious thing in me. It's like I become aware of every sin I've ever committed in my life. And I'm aware that every one of those sins, sin is pushing God away and God is the God of life. And so every one of those sins deserves death. And I, I am so aware of that. Like Christians often talk about how, how you know, we're not worthy of God's love. But I was experiencing the unworthiness. I could taste it. 
We say, oh, we're just saved by grace. But, but I, I was experiencing just how deep that grace goes and, and how it's unmerited. And see, I think what was happening here, as I look back on it, what was happening is that the three days of, of, of this struggle that I was going through, it, it brought me to my end. I, I was physically exhausted from the allergies and the back pain and all the walking and the complete lack of sleep. I was exhausted physically and I was exhausted emotionally. My grieving for my son and my grieving over the city, it brought me to the end. And it it felt like a part of me was dying and the part of me that was dying was, I would describe it as sort of a facade self. uh, The the self, I think we all have it, uh, that we get our sort of, uh, we, we feel good about ourselves because of how we evaluate others, how, how we compare. It's our, our sort of social sense of righteousness. And there's a part of me I realized that felt good about myself because, you know, I'm pretty decent by social standards. Well, here I'm sacrificing for my boy for three days, you know, pretty, pat on the back. And um, I think there was a part of me, honestly, that thought, it's, even if I would think different theologically, I think if I'm honest, and this, this was, experience was nothing if not honest, I, I thought it's, it's pretty reasonable that God would love someone like me. Yeah, I'm pretty good. I need forgiveness for sure, but it, it's fairly reasonable that God would love someone like me. But as I'm laying on the ground here in the presence of the, God's undiluted holiness, see, that facade was being uh, destroyed. I no longer had the, I was exhausted. I no longer had the strength to prop that up because it takes energy to prop that up. I, I no longer had it. I was raw before God. I was naked before God in his presence. And, and it's like the, the heaviness, the unbearable heaviness of that holy presence was squishing every sin and every broken part of me just right out in the open. And, and it was clear who I am. I, I, I remember thinking to myself, I'm, unde- I'm ruined. Woe to me, like Isaiah said. You know, Isaiah was better than average. He was a holy guy. And yet when he comes into the presence of God, his social improvement of, over others is inconsequential. I, I it was being exposed as how irrelevant you are compared to other people when you're in the presence of God. Because the only criteria that matters in the end is how you are compared to God. And how we are compared to God is woe to us. You are so aware of your need for mercy. You've got nothing to stand on other than God's mercy. Uh, even your righteousness, as Ezekiel says, feels like filthy rags. And I'm in the presence of, of this God. And it was, part of it was terrifying. I felt like I was dying. And the part of me that was dying was that facade. And for probably five, ten, I really don't know. I, but for a period of time, I laid in that presence and I started to weep. And then I started to cry. And then I started to bawl. Yeah, yeah. I'm undone. I'm undone. I got nothing. And then, at some point, something radically changed. And now I don't have words for it. The atmosphere, it was unbearably intense in terms of God's holiness, exposing just how desperately in need of mercy I am. How unreasonable it is for God to love someone like me. And then, all of a sudden, I received that mercy. And the atmosphere just changed. It, it just completely changed. And whereas it was unbearably intense uh, holiness that that was sort of terrifying, all of a sudden it's even more unbearably intense 
in terms of being loved, I felt automatically completely loved. I felt completely forgiven. I, I felt completely embraced by God. I felt completely safe in his presence. I, I felt accepted a, a, as his child. I felt like, like it, now it feel, felt like this, that sinful self, that awareness that I had as a sinful self, that was the facade, and now that was broken. As far as the east is from the west, the sins have been cast from me. It, I felt like I'd never sinned in, in my life. I felt completely pure. And holy, I, I felt compatible with, with, with his presence. And, and now I started to cry even harder, but it wasn't tears of, 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 of shame or sorrow. It was tears of joy, tears of happiness, tears of gratitude. I mean, I, was, I, I could taste the destruction I was heading towards, and now I could taste life. I could taste my sin, but now I can taste his holiness. I could taste how I was on the outside, but now I taste how I'm on the inside. And, and when you experience that, my... my the depth of my gratitude and, and my love for God and my love for mercy. Oh, how I love mercy because I couldn't stand in his presence without his mercy. My love for him and for his mercy could not go deeper. I, I, it was more intense than I've ever had it before. My passion. How could you experience this and not experience that? It, it was so random. It just happened in Las Vegas. Two in the morning, bam, I'm having this experience. But, oh, see, when you understand that, when you see that, when you experience that, you see how irrelevant our little prop self is, our, our little social evaluation self, our self-esteem. Folks, self-esteem is a curse. Uh, what we need is Christ-esteem, right? We need Christ-esteem. What you think about yourself is going to be jaded, you know? Uh, your, your social self, that construct by which we congratulate ourselves, um, no, no, lose that. And the only thing that matters is what does Christ think about you? Not self-esteem. Strive for Christ-esteem. And you don't have to strive for that because it's already given to you. It, you know, th this reminds me of, of a story in uh, Luke. Um, uh, Jesus got invited. It's Luke chapter 7. He gets invited to a, a Pharisee's party. And um, uh, he goes, Jesus goes everywhere, so he goes to this Pharisee's party, even though these Pharisees don't particularly like him, and they want to just kind of entrap him and expose him. But he goes. When he enters into this Pharisee's house, his name is Simon, this Pharisee, and Simon doesn't really greet him because he's not a fan of Jesus. He doesn't anoint his head like you're supposed to. He doesn't wash his feet. Uh, doesn't greet him with a kiss. Uh, he just, you know, ignores him. But they're sitting around on the, on the ground, or laying down like they did in the first century with the table in, uh, you know, in, in between them, and they're talking whatever they're talking about. And then all of a sudden, a prostitute crashes the party. And this is a scandal. Pharisees want nothing to do with prostitutes. They, you know, they don't want to be in the vicinity of prostitutes, let alone have a prostitute in your house. What if this gets out? So this is a scandal. But was it even more of a scandal is that this prostitute then comes and kneels at the feet of Jesus and starts weeping and then starts washing his dirty feet with her hair and her tears. And th this is an outrage. Simon is so offended. Uh, if this man, Jesus, was really a prophet, really a rabbi, really a holy man, he would put a stop to this right now. He would know how inappropriate it is to allow a prostitute to touch you, let alone be kissing your feet and crying. And yet Jesus does nothing. So then Jesus reminds Simon, he says, you know, when I came in here, you didn't greet me, you didn't kiss me, you didn't wash my feet, and yet this lady here has been pouring herself out, uh, going to a party that she knows she's not invited to, and yet here she is, loving me like this. Why? He says this in, in 747. He says, I tell you, her sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. See, this lady, well, Simon, see, Simon had the curse of thinking that he 
was more righteous than the prostitute. He had the curse of thinking that, while he maybe isn't perfect, he has just a few things to be forgiven. This prostitute, on the other hand, to be a prostitute in the first century, you know that you're on the bottom rung of everyone's respectability scale. And so she knows that she has a lot to be forgiven. And so when she receives that forgiveness, which is what Jesus gave her, well, she's full, filled with love. Filled with love. Your capacity to love God and to love mercy will be directly proportioned to the degree that you think you need mercy. And if you think you need it just a little because you have a little social construct self, an evaluation self that you're better than average, so you don't need much mercy, well then you're not going to be a lover of God and lover of mercy. It's only when we realize that, and this is why Jesus is bringing this out, that we are in the position of the prostitute, only when we understand that we are the prostitute and we need forgiveness and mercy as much as anybody on the planet ever has, only then are we going to be filled with this profound love for God and profound love for God's mercy. Amen. Yeah, see, the thing that I realized is that that experience in that hotel room, well, see, I had for years, this is two years ago, and I had already for 10, 15 years, been very intentional at collapsing my judgments, very intentional at, at, at opting out of the whole evaluation game. And I had been very intentional at whenever I noticed something in someone else's life, I minimized their sin and I maximized my own sin because that's what Jesus taught us to do in Matthew 7. And yet despite that, I still had a Simon mindset. I didn't know it, but there's a Simon dimension to me. I, I, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy, man. Look what I'm doing with my son, and I, I'm better than average. You know, look at all the sin around me. I'm not like that. I'm even grieved by it. And, they're, they're, I'm, and so, see, if I had that mindset, it couldn't help but compromise the passion of my love and gratitude for God and my love for mercy. To the degree that you have a Simon mindset and you're into that evaluation game and you're thinking you're a little bit, you know, you don't, have the, you don't need his forgiveness as much as the next person. Well, to, to the degree that you think it's reasonable that God would love you, uh, you're not going to feel real outrageous gratitude for him loving you because it makes sense for him to love you. And you're not going to have a great gratitude towards mercy because you only needed a little bit of mercy. How we need to be, get real push past the facade self with its evaluation game and get to know the truth, the truth about who God is and the truth about who we is. Because I guarantee you, if you can push past that facade and really see, uh, get, a, get a sense of, of God's holiness, get a sense of your fallenness, you're going to cry out for mercy. You're going to cry out for mercy. Amen. You know, here's, here's the problem is that, that we are in a culture and we're all enculturated in this culture here in America. Podrishners, you apply it to your own sort of whatever, wherever you're located. But, but, in America, having positive self-esteem is like one of the highest priorities there are. Feeling good about yourself, is that's a really high priority. And all the studies show that the majority of Americans and the majority of, of Christians evaluate themselves very highly. Um, despite the fact that if you ask questions like, what would you do for X amount of money if you were sure not to get caught, it becomes very clear that a good percentage of us are morally vacuous. Because moral conviction is what you would do, you know, what you stick to regardless of the circumstances or the price. Uh, and so, but, but there's a very high sort of evaluation of ourselves. We're just conditioned by this. Uh, you see it in, in our school systems. You know, American kids, I just read this, for 15-year-olds, on a, on, a, on a national test, our 15-year-olds, a test about science and math, our 15-year-olds tended to score really poorly, but they evaluated themselves very highly. Whereas Chinese kids performed at the top, on science and math, but they evaluated their performance really low. Now, both of those are wrong, because it's self-esteem, not Christ-esteem, but, but it just shows you the stronghold that we're under. We're, we're, we're just into feeling good about ourselves. And it really comes out in, in, in moral issues. Very few people take sin very seriously, certainly not their own sin. They maybe have certain scapegoat sins that they go after, but in fact, in the broader culture, 
that word's almost completely disappeared. It's, it's now called misunderstanding or challenged area or something, but the idea of sin is, is almost completely disappeared in the broader culture. And it still exists in the church to some degree. Christians still talk about sin, but it's always other people's sin. You see, we evaluate ourselves very, very highly, and this just becomes one more tool by which we do it. And so we've got a Simon mindset. Um, it, it's, uh, uh, we, we think that there's, we're, we're better than the prostitutes out there. Here's the thing. That evaluation self, that facade self, that feels good because you compare yourself with others. Here's why it's so screwed up. It's really, really easy to feel really tall when you're in a tribe of three-foot pygmies. Yeah. I rest my case. It's, it's like, we, it's, we are in a fallen society that is populated with spiritual pygmies. So the fact that you feel taller than them, first of all, it's probably an illusion. You're probably actually just as small as they are. But uh, secondly, even if you are taller, who gives a rip? You know, that's not the standard you need to be concerned with. The only standard that matters is how you compare to God. And get honest about that, and you're going to realize that you ain't so tall. Here's the other thing. We need to see this. That the very idea that you're taller than someone else or that, that you need less forgiveness than somebody else. That very fact that we tend to not be aware of the depth of our sin, that we think it's reasonable for God to love us, that is itself a symptom of just how deep the sin goes. In fact, it's the surest sign, of, it's the surest symptom of just how, how, how deep the sin goes. Uh, the, the worst kind of disease is the kind that conceals itself. It's like a friend of mine, her, her dad, a number of years ago, died of cancer because it didn't get diagnosed early enough. And um, here's why. He was an overweight guy, and when he first got this cancer, it, took, it, it lessened his appetite. Uh, and so he began to lose weight. And this just was great. Uh, losing the weight made him have more energy. It made him look better. It made him feel better. And people began to compliment him for it. So he's feeling good about himself. He's riding high. And it wasn't until about six months later when he couldn't not lose weight and it started to look unhealthy that he went to the doctor and it turned out he had this cancer. And within 30 days, he was dead. The most serious kind of disease is the kind that makes you actually feel healthier because you've got it. Uh, this is the disease of the Pharisees. The most serious kind of sin is the sin that deceives you into thinking that you're more righteous than somebody. And that you need forgiveness less than somebody. And that, that uh, it's reasonable for God to love you. This is the sin that the Pharisees had. You know, this is why Jesus... The only time he really gets, talks nasty to people, he does it out of love, but he has tough talk for the Pharisees. Because these folks, they don't think they need a physician. They think they're above this. They think they're healthy. And so he pronounces woes on them, and he, he, he says the prostitutes are going into the kingdom before you guys because the prostitutes know they need a physician, and you guys don't think you need it. And he calls them vipers and things like that. And it's because he's trying to wake them up. He's trying to. The hardest people to get to are the people who have this facade self of righteousness. And Jesus is saying, you think you're healthy and you even feel healthy, but I'm telling you, you're full of sickness. You're full of disease. Uh, folks, how we need to be freed from our Simon mindsets, our Simon constructs, the social evaluation self. How we need to be aware that we stand, 100% stand in complete need of God's mercy. How desperate we need to get through this facade self to see the truth about who God is and the truth about how, who we are and to realize that we are the prostitute, and we are completely 100% in need of mercy because only then will we be a people who genuinely, authentically, and passionately love God and love God's mercy and want to see everybody come under its transforming power. Amen. Amen. Jesus, 
to help us get out of our Simonism, our, this, be free of this disease of feeling righteous and only in need of a little forgiveness to help us, he taught some tough stuff. Uh, listen to this, for example, Matthew 5. He says, you've heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And we all go, Whew, I haven't murdered anybody. I'm, I'm, I'm righteous. But I tell you that anybody who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Uh-oh. <laughs> Ever? Ever, like once? Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Raka is just a first century way of flipping someone the bird. Uh, it's, a, it's a slander, like you worthless scum. It's just, and anyone who says you fool is in danger of the fire of hell. Yeah. Hello. Uh -huh. So you're feeling pretty good about yourself because you're a pretty good guy, upstanding, you know, you're a good father, you're a good mother, you're a good worker, you're a good citizen, you give to the poor, you help everybody. Huh. Have you ever been angry with somebody? Ever, ever been angry? Ever, ever thought, you jerk, you scum, you banana butt, you ever, ever, ever thought those thoughts? Ever? You see, here's the thing. Forget the pygmies. This is the standard, folks. This is the standard. You want to you write to God? You think you only need a little bit of mercy? Look at this. How's, how's it going for you now? This kind of levels the playing field. And, and I'm telling you, you look at this seriously. And tell me you don't need mercy. Here's another thing Jesus said. What's another thing Jesus said? Yeah, he said, you've heard, don't commit adultery. Hallelujah, I never have. But I'll tell you, anyone who looks at a woman... Lustfully, it has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And in the 21st century, we can apply this to women as well. Women, if you look at a man, to lust after him. Uh, so you feel good about yourself because you've never committed adultery. You've never murdered anybody. Wonderful, wonderful. You're a good guy, decent guy. You're a regular Simon. Don't need much forgiveness. Well, look at this. Here's a standard. Yeah, you're tall next to these pygmies, but what about this? This is the only standard that matters. Tell me you don't need the mercy of God. Here's another thing that Jesus said. I tell you that everyone, listen to this, everyone will have to give an account of, on the day of judgment of every empty word they have ever spoken. <laughs> feeling pretty righteous, feeling kind of good about yourself. You're a good father, good mother, good worker, good citizen. Yeah, holy, go to church all the time. Wonderful. Have you ever said any worthless thing? Any idle word, an empty word, dumb word, stupid word? Uh, gossip, maybe, about somebody just wasting time. You'll give a counter on the Day of Judgment. Every single thing. Um, take that seriously, and you will be aware that you need the mercy of God as much as any prostitute. Uh, when you come up into God's holiness, the playing field is completely leveled. How you rate socially, how you compare socially, is as irrelevant as the price of petunias and Peru on Tuesday in January. It's, it's completely irrelevant. The only standard that matters is, is how, how do you compare to God? And next to God's holiness, we can only cry out, we're ruined without God's mercy. We're gone without God's mercy. We're done without God's mercy. This is why Paul said this. He said that we were dead in our transmissions. Uh, Ephesians 2. You were dead in your transgressions and sin. Like the rest, you were by nature deserving of wrath. We were dead. To be dead means lifeless. You've got nothing going for you. You can't resuscitate yourself. You can't do anything. You can't even ask for help. You're dead, devoid of life. And so what, what, what the Scripture's teaching is that apart from God's mercy, there's nothing. We, we are damned or there's nothing we can do about it. 
You know, God didn't send us a self-help book because we were a little wounded, we were a little damaged, we are kind of disoriented. No, we were dead, 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 dead. Gone. Uh, utterly, utterly hopeless. The corpse that's lying there, unless something radical happens like a resurrection, that corpse is just going to rot. And then Paul says we are by nature destined for wrath, children of wrath. Now wrath is, is a biblical concept, not of an emotion in God, but of the death consequences of rejecting God. Uh, and, and so... Like a, a, a corpse is destined to rot, we were destined for destruction. Sin is inherently self-destructive. And on our own, that's where we would go. We would be lost, hopelessly lost. We need something radical, radical, radical to happen to us that we couldn't do on our own. And fortunately, Paul goes on in this very passage to say this. Listen to this. Like the rest, yeah, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but you know what? Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. By mercy you have been saved. Hallelujah. Yes. Oh, God is great in his love and rich in his mercy. Great in his love and rich in his mercy. He, he's not like stingy with his mercy, petty with his mercy, kind of gives it if you just beg enough. No, he's rich. Uh, he, he's got an infinite well, wellspring of, of mercy and he lavishes his mercy on us. Even when we're dead in our transgressions, despite our feelings, despite our faults, despite all the rebellion, despite all the empty words we speak, lustful thoughts we have, bad things we think about other people, despite everything that could separate us from him, he lavishes his mercy on us. He for, brings forgiveness to us. We were destined for destruction, folks, but now we are destined for eternal life with Jesus Christ, the triune God, and his love and joy and peace. It couldn't be more glorious. This is the mercy of God that transforms thieves into trustworthy persons and cheaters into faithful covenant partners, praise God. This is the, the mercy that takes a person who's totally empty and fills them with the Spirit of God. Takes a, our sin and makes a saint out of us. We were tainted and now we're blameless and stainless, praise God. We were at war with God, but now we're inside of God. It's enveloped by his love and his holiness, praise God. We had everything going against us, but now we've got everything going for us because nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm just getting hot up here. This is, it, it's not reasonable that God would love us, you see. But see, that's what makes the love of God beautiful. As long as you think it's reasonable, you're a Simon who thinks, oh yeah, it's pretty reasonable that God would love me because I'm pretty okay. As long as you think that, you'll never see the beauty of God. As I'm laying on that floor in Las Vegas, as I'm laying on that floor in Las Vegas and I'm realizing how unreasonable it is for God to love me, I, I, I was asked the question, what, how could you, I'm aware now of, of, of all the reasons I give you for not loving me, so why would you love me? How could you love me? Why would you die for me? I don't get it. I don't understand it. And that's the beauty of it. It's incomprehensible. It's unfathomable. It doesn't make sense. That's why he's beautiful and glorious and salvation is so glorious. If it makes sense to you, you're not even close. <laughs> no, it doesn't make sense. It's like, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. If it makes sense to you, you're still doing a Simon social evaluation thing and you're full of disease. I encourage you to get prostrate on the floor and ask God to show you just a glimpse of his holiness. Not the full thing because it would destroy us, but a glimpse of it and you become aware of, of just what God has done. And then you become a lover of mercy. Uh, how could you not be a lover of God and a lover of God's mercy? Because it is the air you breathe. It's the only reason you're existing. It's the only thing you got going for you. And then you want to see it for everybody. You want to just say, Lord, rain down your mercy on everybody. Now, that, that's not saying that we want to see criminals go free and still stay criminals, because that would harm people. But we want to see God's mercy transform others the way it transforms us. Let your mercy reign. I don't want to see anybody 
get their due. I would love it if Hitler would escape getting his due and feel the mercy of God and be transformed by that mercy. We're to will that for everybody at all times because it's been given to us. So I want to end the service this way. Um, I really believe that one of the most important disciplines we can do to keep our bearings straight is to commit to regularly praying for praying blessing and mercy for the people we think deserve it the least. You'll know that you're having a kingdom mindset when you can genuinely hope that the person who you think deserves it least, by natural world standards, you hope that they escape uh, getting their due. And you, and you want mercy for them. So we're going to end with a corporate prayer here. Um, and uh, I, I'm just going to have us pray for some people that I think would normally be evaluated as being undeserving of mercy. That some people would even get mad if, if these folks uh, somehow don't get what's coming to them. I'm first going to pray for like a global example of this. We're, we are together going to pray for ISIS. And if there's a party that gets mad when I say that, I just encourage you to check out your Simon heart and realize that you are as much in need of mercy as those guys are. And then we're going to pray for this guy, Mikael Kreiner, who this last week murdered that young, beautiful student in Texas University, raped her and murdered her. And then I'm going to ask you to pray for someone in your own life that you maybe have a little more trouble loving and wanting blessing for and extending mercy towards. So as I pray these words, just make them your own. And, and let's just together intercede on behalf of these folks. Holy Spirit, come. Infuse this prayer with your authority. Lord, we pray for the soldiers who fight for ISIS. And we imagine those young men in these camps overseas. We see them waiting for their turn to honor what they believe to be true. We can hear the voices of their leaders empowering them and Convincing them that destruction is God's will and destruction is the answer to the problems of this world. And though they're under a strong spell of deception, Father, we understand their need for purpose and we understand their need for meaning and their longing for justice as they see it and for approval and their desire to change the world. But Father, you, you did not give us what we deserve and so we, we don't want to see them get what they deserve. We're aware that Jesus prayed for our forgiveness and so we pray for their forgiveness. Have mercy on them. We ask that your spirit come upon them and as they lay there in their beds at night. And we ask that you uh, fight the deception that grips their minds and grips their hearts. And we ask that you stir up questions in their minds that, that questions the truthfulness of their cause. And we ask that, Lord, if they wake up to the truth, you help them find safe passage out of that camp. Father, we ask that you shower your rich, rich mercy on them as you have showered your rich, rich mercy on us. And we pray, God, that that mercy breaks the bondages that are on them the way your mercy has broke bondages on us. Have mercy on them. And Father, we, as a congregation, intercede for Mikhail Kreiner, a young man who assaulted and murdered Haruka Weiser this student at the University of Texas. We don't know why, Lord, why this young man would commit such a terrible act. But we do know that you believe that he was worth dying for and has unsurpassable worth, and we agree with you about that. We know that this precious man, this precious soul is in the grips of evil, and we intercede for him. Father, you didn't give us what we deserve, and we do not want to see Mikael get what he deserves. And you prayed for the forgiveness of everybody when you died, and so we pray for the forgiveness of this man. Have mercy upon him, Lord. Have mercy upon him. And as he sits there in his jail cell all alone, we pray, Lord, that your spirit would be with him and working in his heart, 
uh, Lord, as he is sitting there in a, in a country that now despises him, we pray, Lord, that you would impress upon him your profound love for him and our love for him. Somehow, Lord, let him know that he is not alone. And we ask, Lord, that you shower your rich mercy upon him the way you showered your rich mercy upon us. And just as you set us free by that mercy, Lord, set this man free by your mercy. Have mercy on him. And Father, we even pray that you'd incline, that you'd incline the, the, his earthly judge towards mercy. Let your mercy reign. Let your mercy reign. And now I'd like you to just think of someone in your own life, Holy Spirit, help us in this, that you need to pray mercy for. Someone who maybe in the past you wanted to see them get their due, but now you realize that you're called to be a lover of mercy. Let's spend a few minutes just praying for that. Father, we have, we have been forgiven an infinite debt and um, keep our eyes open to that. Free us from Simon thinking. Free us from the false facade self that comes by social evaluation. Help us to walk in the humility of uh, a people who, knows that we stand, who know that we stand by mercy. Help us to have Christ esteem rather than self-esteem. And God, seeing the mercy you've extended to us, we love you and we love your mercy. We cherish it. And our heart is to see it extended to every person on this planet. Forgive them. Forgive them. Let your mercy reign. Transform them. Would you stand here? I, I, let me say this as we close. Um, as we go through the series, Love, Walk, Do, um, we don't want to just be talking about this. We want to actually do it individually and as a congregation. We want to be a congregation that loves mercy and is always doing mercy and walking humbly, doing justice, as we'll talk about later. That to do this is to really get countercultural. We let, all around us, people want vengeance. It's it's a part of our fallen instinct. Give it to them. You know, we want them seen killed. Yeah, if 
All these Christians want to see people get their due, you know, and, and, and they advocate capital punishment. We don't want to see restoration. No, kill the sucker. That's, what they, that's our culture. And so to live with this mercy is going to be countercultural, which is why we need one another. We, you need people around you. You can't, can't swim a stream alone. And so kind of to help this, we have uh, on the back of the, in the back of the auditorium on both sides a kind of a social sounding board thing. And what we're going to ask you to do is after each service, uh, and before each service, we won't take time in the service to do this, but there's, there's some cards up there and some pencils, and we'd like you to write down um, successes you have, like uh, what it was to pray for somebody that previously you, you wanted to, them to really get it, um, and breakthroughs you've had. So report successes there. That encourages people to see that people are learning how to love, love mercy more. But also put up challenges there. And you don't have to put your name to it if you don't want, but you can if you want. Put up, write up challenges. Uh, because it's also encouraging to know that you're not the only one who's facing challenges. And also, as you look at that board, spend some time reading it after the service and before the next service. Um, uh, pray for people with challenges. We want to be praying for one another. Because what we're doing here is no small thing. Uh, we are people who are redeemed by mercy. Everything we have is a result of mercy. As we leave this place in the power of the Spirit, can we be a, a, do it as a people who are committed receiving and giving and delighting and loving and mercy to all people at all times. If you agree with that, say amen. amen. Go out and be merciful. Amen.